Hi, welcome to another episode of Paul Tom Power, Power System Design's podcast on the latest in power and power design. I'm your host, Alex Paul, and I've got Russ Weed and Charlie Vartanian. They're with Uni Energy Technologies, and we're going to talk today about uh, grid-level storage because, well, in order to have the resiliency and the redundancy that the smart grid promises, you have to have grid-level storage, don't you, Russ? Don't you, Charlie? Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and certainly. I'll tag team that one, yes, indeed. So uh, having a smart grid without energy storage is like having the Internet without data centers. You have to have a buffering capability. Exactly. I agree with you, gentlemen. And, and, and that's exactly that aspect of the buffer. There are two aspects of that buffer. How large should the buffer be? How large should that buffer be? And who's responsible for that buffer? Which of you gentlemen like to jump in and, answer, and talk about that aspect? Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, you know what? Great question. And I'm, this is Charlie. Background is power systems engineering. And uh, my role here is actually connecting capabilities to needs. And I'll, I'll touch on the, uh, you know, what is the buffering need? There are two dimensions. Uh, so it's like the bandwidth. How much you do, do you need to do at any moment, which is the power, and then for how long, or the quantity, which is the duration. And mm-hmm. uh, to get from the current state of the art, which has been a bit more short duration, high power oriented, you know, an application today at bulk level is in frequency regulation for transmission system stability as well as ramp rate management for some of the PV and wind projects on grids that need that service. Uh, so let's say it's a high bandwidth, high power, but not necessarily long storage. And in fact, sometimes a, a continuous energy st- exchange and not true storage at all. Uh, as you truly get to resiliency, blackout, backup, making renewables truly dispatchable versus grid friendly, then you add the more challenging dimension, which is the duration or the true ability to store massive amounts of energy to return at a later time. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing there is, there are a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of energy out there. I mean, obviously, something as primitive as, I shouldn't say primitive because there are some companies doing advanced things with lead-acid battery, but even something like uh, pumping water up a hill, the old traditional method, there are a lot of ways to store energy. Um, what are the different challenges that, say, for example, the municipality has to deal with in dealing with what type of stored energy, the choice of what kind of stored energy, how that stored energy is going to be released into the system, how it gets buffered in the first place? Aren't those all big issues? You know, I'm going to jump in again from a technical viewpoint, and then uh, Russ probably has better insight in some of the, I'll call, regulatory or market constraints for utilities and municipals uh, getting the technology out. Uh, pump storage is a perfect example. It's a, uh, you know, if you have the geography and geology, it's a great way to store large amounts of energy. A challenge is, once again, having access to a developable, developable site and a large capital cost to deploy a multi-hundred megawatt system that can store eight hours or up to days of energy, which is really would be desirable in many markets. The second aspect that's technical is it tends to not to be next to load centers. You tech typically can't constrain her res- reservoir that much water in a load center. Um, an aspect of electrochemical options or even mechanical like flywheels is you can place them in load centers and aggregate them. So w- what I envision is there'll be electrochemical equivalents of pump storage where 
in aggregate, probably not any single project, but in aggregate and through smart grid controls, you can get a fleet of 100 megawatts worth of storage with multiple hours or even days of storage that are placed actually where you need it the most at load centers. And here's another big plus you get from that. Then you actually get emergency outage backup, whereas a pump storage located remote won't do a lot if the larger grid is down. Um, again, Russ probably has some insights more on the business constraints or the models for utilities getting storage out there. I'm just going to continue the same metaphor before. You know, imagine that the Internet had just a few fairly remote data centers and no, you know, nodes as part of the Internet. And so you, you need nodes. Uh, in the U.S., for example, there are many, many uh, utilities, you know, different kinds of utilities, public, private, and so forth. There's something like 3,000 of them, I believe. So it's uh, one term for it, balkanized. Uh, so the distribution system, the transmission system are very complicated. It's a web. And having uh, distributed storage, whether it be at a substation or other nodes of the grid, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, and it does make a lot of sense. And actually, this is a conversation that I've been having with others, and not just in the storage space, but a lot of people just in the whole smart grid space as to the nature of the grid. And what I'm hearing a lot is, just as every other thing the web touches, it makes it like the web. We've seen virtualization of just about everything now, data centers, uh, manufacturing. Everything is going to virtual management, virtual redundancy systems. The grid itself, if you think of it from that point of a data or in, you know, thinking of power as data, and actually if you think about it, a data system is driving power to all of those places as well, and that's, a, that's an energy management system in that sense. Electron. But, exactly. And then now, but now we've got to worry about it or deal with it at the um, grid level. And I do agree with you that that type of uh, virtual philosophy can, uh, can work because the, these node grid storage centers, regardless of the core technology, could be treated as virtual power stations. Exactly, and here's the beautiful part. It's the conversion, uh, convergence of the smart grid side with advanced distributed resources that are actually complementary to leg the legacy grid. Uh, so, you know, central station, central dispatch was in some ways the limits of the technology of circa 1950 to 1980 when a lot of, and this is U.S.-centric, but it parallels global experience where the infrastructure was built out. But you, you look out in second, third world, no one's, doing these centralized, highly wired scenarios. It's highly decentralized cellular phone, for example, versus wired phone. I think the neat part is those concepts could be implemented even in a legacy system in the U.S. And one, let's throw out some big ideas, provocative outcome is we could see the elimination of rolling blackouts. There'd be no reason for cascading out outages when a smart, energized load side as well as grid side can sense react, reconfigure, and preserve load like it couldn't have done even 15 years ago. And I agree. Let's take Sandy Go as ahead. an example. Take Sandy as an example. Uh, unfortunately, there were a lot of people who had renewables uh, that were surprised that when Sandy hit and the grid was hit that uh, they couldn't operate their renewables. And that was because those systems uh, couldn't island 
Uh, I am not an electrical engineer, and so I'll defer to Charlie on the you know the the important details to islanding. But one important uh, use of uh, storage that we haven't talked about is in support of islanding, uh, whether uh, that's in the middle of Manhattan or uh, as another application, you know, an island in the Cook Islands for microgrids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, microgrids, as you pointed out, are a good way for a legacy grid like ours to be upgraded because we could implement microgrids within the larger legacy grid and either then supplement or eventually replace those uh, outdated portions of the legacy grid. Yeah, and that's where I think the technology is so complementary. Again, there's some challenges from a market regulatory um, aspect that adds some friction. Uh, but, you know, some of this is already – I'd like to give a shout-out to UC San Diego. They're a great example of a, you know, a campus-scale microgrid that's connected at distribution. But, you know, the concept expands to bulk transmission. And this is where, you know, technology such as ours, slow batteries, back-to-your-pump storage – um, the microgrid co- concept expands to full regional substation. You know, you can actively island a city. You know, once again, you see San Diego's implementing that with storage, other devices at a campus level. But uh, what I think is great is the concept scale and some of the uh, battery and other technologies scale along with it. So we are very excited about seeing what's being implemented, distribution facility level, really promote the idea of getting the years and the power in the power industry thinking about let's expand those concepts and again uh, arrest cascading black blackouts allow for 50% renewable contribution you know some some of these more forward-looking concepts mm, I agree completely I agree agree completely gents so now let's move on another additional policy goal that Please. is accomplished through that greenhouse gases that's at, not, and add-on strategic independence you can add a lot of things to that. You can add a lot of things to that list. You're absolutely right. But then, so now my question is, how is that philosophy manifested in product at your organization? So our product is a long-duration flow battery that has what we call all-in-one capability, so you can do the long stuff and the short stuff, as Charlie pointed out earlier. Uh, up to now, most of the technology, most of the products available have been on the shorter duration side, both in terms of charging and discharging. Uh, Now what UET has is a long duration battery that can charge and discharge for not just two hours, but four hours, six hours, eight hours. Actually, the unique thing about a flow battery is that you can toggle the power and the energy. Mm -hmm. And if... In different markets, that long-duration capability coupled with the short-duration capability, in other words, being able to peak shift and do frequency regulation concurrently, which our product can do, not not serially, but concurrently at the exact same time, you then can stack benefits and address both the long and the short needs. And instead of having one product for one thing and another product for another thing. Got it. Got it. Well, at that point, um, I would ask, if it were a traditional battery, what would it be printed on the side in amp hours? Uh, you know, we actually can, can 
conform to more of a uh, power industry stamp standard on our basic building block, it would say two megawatt hours. Okay, okay, that's that's a decent amount of power. And what size of a of a, of a device are we talking about here for that? Uh, it, it is five 20-foot containers that take 960 square feet. There are four battery containers with that two megawatt hours of storage capacity with a an inverter, a power electronics interface in the fifth container that is uh, nominally rated 500 kilowatts. So that that's our standard right. uni-system product, 500 kilowatts, four hours, or two megawatt hours. Well, now, and that's, that's actually quite good when you consider the fact that that entire setup is clean, number one, right? Right. There, there's uh, no emissions. In fact, it's self-contained in terms of the electrolyte is within a container, closed-loop system. Um, what comes out is really three-phase AC power at medium voltage. Again, our product is oriented at multi-megawatt substation-based. Um, but, you know, it looks, feels, smells like a... Uh, generation or even a TND switchyard type project asset. Well, so let's say, for going, example, though. Okay, go ahead. I apologize. I was just going to say the only thing going in and out of our battery is electrons. Right. So, now, so like, what well, I was about to say there. Well, go ahead. I apologize. Yeah, the electrolyte is totally. Excuse me. The electrolyte is con totally contained within the containerized system. That's one of the important points of our offering is that it is fully containerized. Uh, UET has the first grid scale, fully containerized, fully integrated system. Uh, flow battery system. Flow battery system. There are other flow batteries that uh, do a division of labor, if you want to put it that way, where they put the, the stacks or the electrodes, as they're called, in one container and the electrolyte in another, and then that means you have plumbing in between. Ours you have both the electrolyte and the stacks in each container. As Charlie said, four battery containers and a call a power container with the PCS, and if the customer wants it, a medium voltage transformer. So in each one of the battery containers, you've got uh, up to peak power capability of 150 kilowatts and you know, maximum energy, uh, depending upon how you, you toggle the uh, power up to uh, 550 kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's dual now, contained. As yeah. built, coming out of the factory, it's dual contained. you got the, the, tank, the two tanks that have the electrolyte in it, and then you have the container itself, which is coated. So you have dual containment coming out of the factory. If the customer wants tertiary containment, they can do that uh, at the, the installation site. But you know, coming out of the chute, uh, it's, you already have dual containment. Now, okay, let's say that's 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 great. And actually, the the, the dumb question I was going to ask earlier is that so if I'm um, you know trying to set up like a secret school for mutants in upstate New York and I want to put a power plant in my basement, I could put this inside because I don't have to worry about any emissions. You you could, but this might be in this current product configuration a little big. <laughs> yeah, if you had the space for twenty foot containers. Uh, but yes. Uh, again, well, the mutants don't need the gym anyway. We have building-based solutions. Yeah, I mean, what you are getting at on the technical side, which I'm not qualified to speak to too much, is gas management. And yes, we have very uh, uh, precise and 
uh, well-instituted gas management systems. Now, let's say something does happen. How how uh, dangerous is the actual electrolyte and materials involved? Uh, they're very benign. So, from a fire risk standpoint, it is a water solution, uh, aqueous solution, electrolyte acid base. There's a dilute acid that needs to be managed. Uh, what's good is in its solution format, the vanadium oxides are not a health hazard. Uh, so the uh, the MSDS or the environmental triangle uh, warning symbol is a three for corrosiveness, zero for fire, zero for re reactivity. Um, so, you know, that's one of the advantages. I said there's a trade-off that at the cell level, there are higher density battery cells that have more aggressive chemistries and chemicals. But uh, again, um, the trade-off being some cell density, we're working with fairly benign uh, a fairly benign chemistry, and the vanadium metal itself in solution is uh, not a health hazard. So in building and uh, putting the containers in a building, is, is there are no uh, barriers to that idea if you do open your school in upstate. <laughs> Glad to deliver it well, there. Right, right, because then, cause then once, every once in a while... Hmm? There are saying? a lot of buildings... There are a lot of buildings where you can use these systems. It's the so-called CNI market segment, the commercial and industrial. There you go. Because that's what I was really trying to get at with the, the, the relative safety of the system. Because uh, if I had an array of, say, solar panels or I maybe had a, uh, some other type of uh, energy generation that is irregular, I could then harness it with that system and then have good, clean power for my facility, right? Yes. Because that would be also a very, very good uh, way to use the system and say, for example, uh, some type of a buffer in a cogeneration plant. Well, Charlie, in fact, is, is working on a project like that, keeping it at a generic level until we're ready to talk more publicly. But, uh, but uh, this is actually a really good application. It also yeah. extends to a, a cost-effective microgrid application. Um, we're, we're putting out a system on the customer side of the meter where they haven't been able to use a cogen plant, natural gas fired, because of a mismatch between the, the load and the fle operational flexibility. Uh, so we're putting one out where the battery is literally, literally a buffer that allows the cogenerator to operate flat-loaded within its optimum power band. So not only does it run, but it runs efficiently. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have personal experience. Uh, you know, I bought a battery once in my utility days for uh, a Pacific Island where uh, we were having problems with emissions compliance. And, again, used a battery to do nothing but take up the load following so the, uh, the diesels could uh, be base-loaded and got the emissions rate of the diesels within a South Coast air quality management limit. Um, and what I'd like to point out about that one, it, it was cost-effective. It was not R&D. It was a megawatt-scale battery that was outright cost justified because there was this hard um, constraint on meeting an emissions compliance target. Well, I, I almost think of a reflow battery as almost a liquid flywheel and all of the applications that can thereby be served from the, which used to be from the uh, micro to the semi-macro, but I mean, when you think of it this way, then the sky's the limit. You could replace that a uh, humongous flywheel that's running in the base of some of the older data centers, or you could replace 
even uh, smaller systems that were aggregated now that they don't have to worry about uh, locating the system in, say, a clean room or in, in, in a shirt sleeve environment or something. You're, you're hitting one of our, our real strengths. What we get excited about, we call ourselves all-in-one. So we can address the time frames and cyclings that a flywheel would do, even on a power quality speed of response. Uh, so you get rid of those flywheels, as well as even the good old lead-acid batteries that are sitting there for the once-a-year outage, <laughs> you know, to back up a system. Um, so, uh, again, Which we have, have to be replaced every the, 10 years. Right. And, oh, by the way, did we mention that vanadium flow batteries don't degrade with cycling? So one of the, you know, again, so you can run it like a flywheel continuously, reserve some capacity for backup, and part of the really strong economic aspects uh, shared by vanadium flow as a family is, uh, it does not degrade through cycling. So we're actually putting out commercial commitments for 20 years uh, where we're saying up front, you know, the batteries don't need to be added to nor replaced to retain both their capacity, their power, and their energy storage capacities. Well, the utility class assets, and uh, that follows because it's a flow battery. So the electrons that are being inserted and deserted are not doing so from a solid, like other solid-state batteries. They're doing so in terms of a liquid, and so you don't have the material stress on the electrode that leads to degradation, uh, capacity fade, all those unhelpful things. Got it, got it. And then those are all of those advantages of that type of a technology. And uh, so the other question at that point would be, how, how much hand-holding do you offer to help people integrated into their systems. I'm going to say to Charlie, it's not so much hand-holding, it's uh, making sure the customer has information on how energy storage can help them. So maybe on modeling, for example. That, you know, that, that, that's a really good way. So we're ready to co collaborate from uh, e even the value proposition. We've got the ability to run production simulation to check someone's economics. You know, are they going to get a payback from the battery? Um, importantly, we in-house, we've got a full controls design team because, uh, of course, you really can't get the use out of it unless you can control it, no matter how great the battery is. Uh, so more at a product level or system level, uh, pretty robust capability engineering staff that can work with the client. Again, what I'll call it the scoping stage, making sure we got the right size and capability through the um, deployment stage. Also have a pretty good internal, building a r rigorous testing regime that we're pretty confident is going to be important in terms of working with the clients as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, our system has been third-party validated uh, by uh, a particular individual who is an old hand in the industry. He uh, worked in energy storage as a program manager at Sandia National Laboratory. Uh, we're in the process of having uh, further testing done uh, by Sandia, also in conjunction with uh, P&L. Uh, customers want to know that you're a real utility class asset. That includes safety. That includes reliability. Well, after having said all of that, that those are all critical aspects. And you've got the support out there. Um, what other considerations should a facility manager or a campus super, you know, owner or a, 
you, you municipality have when they're stepping. What's the what's the question you expect your customer? The intelligent question you expect your customer to ask when they step in your door. How can you help me? <laughs> how can you make? How can you help my? You know, help me do my job better. Provide better service, more reliable service, more resilient service. How can you help me make sure that the electrons keep flowing, keep the lights on, uh, cost effectively? Well, that's a good answer. So, Russ, Charlie, I always give my guests the last uh, word in these podcasts. So, what would you like to leave our audience with? You, it could be a little bit more about your company philosophy, about your products, or just a general tip you'd like to leave the audience, but the floor is yours. Sure. Uh, so UET uh, is about innovation. Uh, we're taking uh, technology that was originally invented at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, uh, funded by you and me as U.S. citizens, and we've commercialized it into a product that is needed today. So it's about innovation. It's about partnerships. Uh, we were founded in March 2012. We now have a commercially available grid-scale product in the middle of 2014. That's pretty quick, and we've only been able to do that through partnerships, working with a number of other companies so that we could get to this point as quickly as we have. And the third thing that we particularly want to emphasize these days as we enter into mass production is quality. We manufacture our products in our facility in Mukilteo, Washington, uh, near Everett, uh, Washington, uh, near uh, a big Boeing manufacturing facility, and we're taking a full you know, factory integration, quality control approach, and as we scale up, uh, we'll, we'll make uh, something like three, three and a half megawatts of batteries this year, uh, multiple times that next year, and uh, by the time we're done, which could be something we're not done, but by the time we've fully scaled up in you know, maybe four years or so, uh, we expect to be making 100 megawatts of batteries a year out of our facility here. Uh, we have 40 employees at this point. We're hoping uh, we scale up to something like 100. So clean tech jobs, family wages, health care, building up the clean tech cluster, um, using technology for good. Uh, so that's, that's part of the, the story that we try and get across, and we appreciate you and your publication helping make that possible. Well, I really appreciate that. And, uh, well, the nice thing about this podcast series that I've always felt is it gives everybody an opportunity to talk about this technology in a conversational tone instead of just simply, you know, throwing information at, you know, of how many volts in this app space and that app space that we actually start examining the why of a lot of this and the what can we do of it, not just simply how we get a line from point A to point B. Yeah. We appreciate the chance to have that kind of conversation. Excellent. And so now, uh, where do people go to get information on Uni Energy Technologies? www.e, excuse me, ue technologies, plural, dot com. Excellent. So again, so, oh. ue technologies dot com. Ue technologies dot com. Yes. So the acronym is UET, but the website is UETechnologies.com. Plural. Excellent. Okay, gents. 
Thank you so much for taking the time, Russ, Charlie. I appreciate it, and I know our audience does because the smart grid is really like the blind men and the elephant. It really depends on what angle you're looking at it from, and grid storage is a critical subsector of the infrastructure of a future smart grid, so I'm glad you guys were able to come to the show to talk about it. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody out there in the audience for taking the time to be with us. We wouldn't be here without you. Tell your friends. This is Alex Paul for Paul on Power. Have a great day.